It's Monday, April 6th. Welcome to Market Forward. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Million Dollar Portfolio, Simon Erickson, and from Stock Advisor Canada, Taylor Markerman. Happy Monday, gentlemen. Indeed. Happy Monday, Chris. Happy, happy weekend. Happy opening day. <laughs> oh, my God. For all opening the night for fans. me. Cardinals, 1-0 uh, already. That's right. That's right. Technically, last night... Well, I mean, today's opening yeah, day. Yeah, today's opening day. Last night was the first game. Card- kudos to your Cardinals mm. beating the Cubs. Just another 161 games <laughs> to go. Um, we're going to give an earnings preview because this week kicks off earnings season. But let's start with a little bit of news from Tesla Motors. Just a couple of weeks ago, Simon, Tesla Motors stock pretty close to its 52-week low. And one of the biggest gainers on the NASDAQ today on the heels of the news that in the first quarter, Tesla sold over 10,000 Model S vehicles, which doesn't sound like a lot, but for Tesla, that's a big jump. Yes, I would say we're going from the brake to the accelerator for the stock right now, because it seemed like doom and gloom for last quarter for Tesla. You know, They were not growing in China, they were missing on their own internal forecasts, and it just seemed like everybody was really kind of bearish on, on this company. And I would say the tone has changed now. You know, they, like you said, they, they've delivered over 10,000 Model S vehicles. They're now launching the, their battery storage packs. There's a lot more opportunity, I think, that the market's reacting to in this company. Well, and you and I were talking a little bit earlier today. The, the percentage leap that we're talking about is over 50%. You look at this first quarter of 2015 compared to the first quarter of 2014. But beyond that, I, I, I just, and I could very well be wrong about this, but I just look at auto sales in general and I just figure the first calendar quarter is going to be, if not the lowest, it's, it's certainly not going to be as high as what I would normally expect Q2 and Q3 to be, just based on the weather. Yeah, and we, we heard a lot about the weather in the last couple of months, right? But seems like they're turning that around. And I mean, the, the story with Tesla is still very early on. I mean, Model S is still a premium priced vehicle that they're, you know, selling 10,000 of every quarter. Wait until we get to, you know, this third generation Model 3 that that's going to be mass market affordable electric vehicle with free charges all around the country. So we're still in the early stages. You know, it's important to see that they're gaining momentum in these sales. But I think that the real punches is still to come. Well, one other thing, and then we'll, we'll get on to the earnings preview. I, Something that it seems like we heard a lot about two, three years ago that I don't recall hearing anything about recently is, at least in the U.S., this idea of charging stations. Because a few years ago, part of the bear case against Tesla was, well, wait a minute, where, what is the range of these vehicles? Where are they going to be able to charge up? And they've been able to, in some ways, very quietly build up charging stations around the country in a way that, again, you just don't really hear that. When people are making the bear case for Tesla, I, I don't I don't hear that as part of their lead argument. Which is, you know, a testament to Elon Musk as your CEO. You know, a guy that's, that's not only visionary, but responds and knows what the pain points of his industry are and goes right after him. You know, I, I agree that we aren't having that the topic of conversation so much anymore now that they've built in longer ranges and these charging stations are starting to get built. That's one thing that the natural gas fueling industry has kind of struggled with, the chicken versus the egg. You have two different companies or two different styles of companies. One's building the, the stations that provide the natural gas, and then you have the engine manufacturers. But Tesla has just decided to be the chicken and the egg, and they're being they're successful as a result. 
Alcoa reports their earnings after the market closes on Wednesday. That is the unofficial, official, I don't know. I always think of it as the official kickoff to earnings season. Woohoo! Uh, so let's, uh, let's look ahead to the second quarter. Um, and I'll just start with you, Taylor. Uh, what is one thing you're going to be watching? It can be an industry, it can be a company, anything in particular. What are you watching as we get ready to kick off Q2? Um, so I don't have much tech exposure in my personal portfolio, so I'm looking at the dream biggers, as I like to call them. I think, you know, Simon, uh, some of the work he's done, he looks at a lot of these companies, and um, one of the ones in particular I'm looking at is Google. It's traditionally advertising and, and uh, search, but I don't think that's the future of this company by by a large margin. Um, so some of the projects that they're working on with Google X and the, the the cash hoard that they have in terms of cash and cash equivalents is like 65 billion. Brand new CFO coming on board this summer from Wall Street with uh, Ruth Porat. I think with her expertise in the tech sector and dealing with Wall Street, I could see you know Google going out and buying up some companies either just on a whim or out of necessity um, to kind of supplement some of these projects they're working on, self-driving cars, internet from balloons, and they want to cure death. Um, that seems like a company with some pretty lofty goals outside of dominating um, advertising like they have. And Android is still the largest um, smartphone and cell phone uh, user interface in the world by a pretty large margin. Um, so they've got that going for them. And uh, they're down about 10% over the last, or sorry, if they're flat about over the last year, um, with the NASDAQ up about 19%. So they're trading relatively low compared to some of their competitors. And um, I just like the vision that they have of, of creating a, a better society. One thing we've seen reports of over the last week or so is the EU reportedly preparing an antitrust case against Google. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there are a number of figures being thrown around. The one I saw was a $6 billion fine. It seems like when you think about, as you said, the cash hoard that Mm -hmm. Google has, not that they're happy to pay a $6 billion fine, but they're certainly able to pay that type of fine. But I'm wondering if the reputational damage becomes more of a concern. It certainly could, and you know, one thing about this company is they have a lot of cash overseas that they haven't brought back to the U.S. Um, maybe it's a way to get rid of it, and as as a, as a kind of like a silver lining, without having to bring it back to the U.S. and pay taxes on it. Um, unfortunately, you're you're paying a fine. You're you're still losing this money. You're not gaining anything from it. But I think with with Google, um, the reputation is is still going to be intact in my mind. Yeah, and as soon as I use the phrase reputational damage, I realize that's inaccurate. I I think back to. 99, 2000, 2001, when Microsoft was the huge, successful, very large market mm-hmm. cap tech company uh, that antitrust cases were were being considered against. And it wasn't so much reputational yeah. damage as sort of a cloud hanging over the company. And it just became, I think, for some investors, just sort of a distraction. I'm yeah. sure it felt that way for Microsoft, too. And so, that's that's where I think the concern is not so much that that Google's reputation is is going to get really dinged in any meaningful way, but it does it does start to become a distraction if indeed it comes to fruition. Yeah, the market, by and large, doesn't like uncertainty, but with uncertainty provides opportunity. You know, you see them trading um, well below their peers as in terms of previous year performance, and um, I, I think that's unduly. Uh, 
lauded upon them. In fact, I mean, this company's still successful. Um, so, and it's in some cases, I would think that an antitrust suit is kind of a badge of honor. You've gotten <laughs> big enough to where they have to bring this upon you. And um, it's a company that I haven't purchased yet, but it's it's one of those that I'm I'm thinking about kind of starting my tech portfolio with. Simon, what's one company or industry that you're going to be watching this quarter? Well, Chris, I love, first of all, that Taylor brought a, a, tech, a tech company to the table, because yeah. I sure did the same. <laughs> this was kind of you know closed envelope before we came in here. But I'm, I'm going with Facebook. I think that's the company that I'm keeping an eye on right now, because these guys are just developing industries of their own. It's a company, but they're kind of pushing you know, the limits of, of what a lot of existing industries are doing. Um, Facebook just had their Global Developers Conference recently, and they one of the things they really focused on was they're using Messenger, uh, which has now got 600 million monthly users um, for customer service, for existing companies to not only use Facebook to advertise to get customers, but now they're working out the kinks of how they can actually pay on Facebook and then fulfill and, and process the orders and stuff like that on the back end using Messenger as well. And that just blows my mind. I mean, you know, it's going to be really interesting for me to see if, if customers, one, are signing up for this, this new feature of Messenger, and two, if this just becomes the go-to platform for small businesses to reach a much larger, larger audience. I mean, that was kind of always a limitation if you're a smaller company. You can't get that kind of breadth that you had of a bigger company, and Facebook's just enabling that now. It strikes me as the type of initiative that, obviously, any new initiative, you want it to be successful out of the gate. This strikes me as one that the bar is slightly higher, therefore it becomes a little bit more important, a little bit more crucial for long-term success that it be successful out of the gate. Unlike, say, for example, a gadget of some sort, and you know, p- pick any gadget. Uh, you know, go back to the original iPhone, and it's almost laughable when you think about how relatively limited a device the very first iPhone was, but. Ultimately, that's not that important. It was very much a game changer for Apple. And you knew, as you watched that company, that better iterations were coming down the line. When you talk about reaching out to customers, that can be an incredibly positive thing, or it can become a ham-handed, I mean, just something that nobody wants. It, It becomes like a more personalized version of spam email. And so that's where I think that that could be a a big hit for them. But I think that those, if I'm Facebook, I'm vetting those initial companies early and often, and making sure that I'm confident that they're going to deliver on whatever customer outreach they're doing. And, and it's amazing to me, Chris. This is something we've talked about a couple times in the show before. But <clears throat> Facebook now has over a billion people on the platform. That is a huge competitive advantage in and of itself. That you can do a whole bunch of different things. And this company is so good at optimizing things. We visited Facebook a couple of years ago, and we talked with some of the developers about what is the time from the conception of a new idea to when it's actually launched in front of members. And I came from, you know, um, or customers, I should say. I came from the energy industry before, so this was kind of a long kind of time, maybe a year or more. Do you know how long it is for Facebook to get a completely new idea to something that's in front of a customer? Six months. 20 minutes. <laughs> 20 minutes? They, they can actually <laughs> go <a> out. <laughs> 20 off. minutes. It, it, it's amazing how well they can optimize. They, they call it the hacker mentality, if you will. But just, you know, they throw something out there. They see what works well. They make it a little bit better. And through all of these iterations, all of a sudden, you've got something that's highly optimized in front of 600 million monthly users. I, I have 
I, I have a lot of um, faith that they're going to get this right, I think. It might, maybe not exactly from the very beginning, but I think they'll figure it out. All right, let's drill down on companies that you guys think need a hit, because despite the fact that the market is at all-time highs, certainly not every stock is at an all-time high. And there are some quarters, while we take the long-term view, there are some companies out there that, that really do need this quarter to be better than expected. Taylor, what do you think? Um, I'm going with, with HomeAway. Uh, it's a U.S. recommendation in uh, Stock Advisor Canada, and it's really struggled since we've recommended it, um, not as a business, but just in the marketplace, um, You know, down 10% over the last year, even more so on our side, because we, we recommended it when it was a little bit higher. But And this is like an Airbnb, this is a you-can-rent your right. home out to perfect strangers. They're kind trying of thing. to change the way that you that you go on vacation. Um, a lot of times, these uh, HomeAway is using people's secondary homes, whereas Airbnb people are also renting out portions of their primary home. But HomeAway um, is is a publicly traded company. Airbnb isn't. It's supposedly valued at ten billion based on or a little over ten billion based on. Um, a raise they did in October, and Airbnb is looking at maybe a twenty billion dollar valuation based on some fundraising they're doing now, which would put it at you know seven x the value of Air of a HomeAway, excuse me, um, with two to three times less um, the amount of business and, and traffic that HomeAway is seeing. So um, I think either the VCs are in in for a world of hurt that are investing in Airbnb, or they know something that the market doesn't. Because uh, even if these valuations meet in the middle, HomeAway is worth double or more what it is right now. And um, they've, they've been spending time kind of bringing their acquisitions that they've made over the last few years into the same um, under the same fold. And now they're just ready to start pushing on the accelerator, spending a lot more on marketing. And um, they're, they're, they're thriving, and, and the market just isn't representing that. If I've got a second home, which I don't, um, but if I've got a second home and I think, well, I'm going to look to rent this out, do people use multiple platforms or do they essentially need to choose Airbnb versus HomeAway versus VRBO or something like that? Um, in my in my estimation, I would I think that you know you kind of go with your go with one with one platform because you don't want overlapping right. uh, rentals and the the difference between these models, which is why I think HomeAway is a little bit. Um, wiser of an investment as a, as a as a retail investor is that it's a subscription based model. People will sign up and they pay a fee to be a part of of um, HomeAway, whereas Airbnb is more of a commission based model. And so uh, the, the commissions that they're making aren't nearly as high as what HomeAway is charging you to be a uh, I guess quote unquote member of their service. Um, so there's a little bit more consistency consistency in the cash flow projections and things like that. Um, which is why, th- and there's a lot more staying power because if you're just working on a commission basis, you can the the customer of Airbnb isn't locked into a contract or anything, uh, at least as um, as overbearing as what a HomeAway would be. But um, HomeAway is trying to work with their customers to provide them with a little bit more uh, of a revenue sharing model, um, and I think that that's going to be something that attracts more and more customers to the fold. Simon, who needs a hit? Uh, Chris, the company that needs, I think, a hit is Stratasys, ticker SSYS. This is a <clears throat> recommendation rule breakers, which is a service that I'm a part of, and also Stock Advisor Canada. Yeah, it's another U.S. rec. It's one of our last two that we've made. Yeah. Yep, perfect. So, I mean, this is a 3D printing company. We've talked about it quite a bit, but the stock is actually down 36% year-to-date. Got whacked about 28% in early February when the market didn't like two things. 
Uh, one, their consumer revenue. This is 3D printers that they sell to the consumer market through MakerBot. Uh, only grew 7% year over year. And then also that they were ramping up their internal investment in R&D and marketing to take advantage of a much larger pie in the future. And, you know, to address both of those, first, the consumer market, I don't think that 3D printing is really there yet. Um, I don't personally know more than one person that has a 3D printer in their home, and even he's just using it as a hobby right now. So <laughs> we're, not, we're not there. We're not at the, a point that we have a 3D printer in everyone's homes yet. Um, and MakerBot was still only about 12% of of Stratasys' total revenue. So I think the market's kind of looking at the wrong thing. There's big potential for the consumer market, but we're not there yet. And then the the ramping up of internal in de- in investment in R&D and marketing, um, Stratasys is targeting $3 billion of sales by the year 2020. That would be about four times their annual sales from today, and about 15% of the $21 billion total industry by that year. So there's a lot of potential for 3D printing. I think we're, we're short-sighted to, to count this company out, as a lot of the market is doing right now. Is, are these things that you could ever imagine walking into a Home Depot or a Lowe's and seeing a 3D printer on the shelf? Because on the one hand, I think the average person who's walking into those homes, or at least some of those customers, are the people who might be likely to buy a 3D printer if they're doing multiple projects around the house and they're particularly handy, that sort of thing. On the other hand, I could also see the opposite where Home Depot and Lowe's have their like, no, we don't want people making their own nails. We have <laughs> we have vendors who make nails. We don't want to sell 3D printers to compete with them. Yeah, and I think that, um, well, yes, there's both sides. And I think that the Cube, which is actually made by 3D Systems, actually is for sale in Home Depot, oh, if I'm okay. not mistaken, right now. So, they're actually on the shelves right now. But, you know, you've got kind of two sides of this. You know, industrial customers are going to use this more and more and use those consumer materials. But on the other hand, you know, it used to be um, when Kinko's had a great business model of, of printing regular inkjet printing for everybody, and then everyone had a, th- had a regular printer in their homes, and you just swap out the cartridges over time. So I think, I think with time, there's a lot of promise for consumer market. Uh, it actually does go that, that way eventually. I could kind of see Lowe's having them on the shelves, but not for purchase, but you go there and you just choose a model of a nail, and rather than having vendors, they just print the nails right there on site, or whatever it is that you want. You're welcome, Lowe's. <laughs> Brand new business model, courtesy of Taylor Markerman. Radio at fool.com is our email address. Got an email from Michelle regarding our discussion last week about museums. Michelle writes, I have another great museum makeout spot for you. My husband and I spent a lot of time there when we were first dating in San Francisco, the tactile dome in the Exploratorium. It has really cool hands-on science experiments. The tactile dome is an exhibit that you enter that's pitch black, You wriggle through tunnels and feel different surfaces. In the heart of it, there's a little place to rest with dim red lighting. You have to reserve time in the tactile dome, and it costs a little more to go, but that just means it's not as crowded inside. A close second, because apparently my husband and I have made a hobby out of making out in California cultural landmarks, are the insides of the cars in the Sacramento Railroad Museum. They rock and have sound effects like you're on the Orient Express just a little information for the next time you visit. Boy, that is handy information. Great tips for listeners. Great Chris. tips. And again, you're not hearing that on Bloomberg. Um, <laughs> April is, among other things, Financial Literacy Month. That was part of the point of our joke that we did on April Fool's Day regarding the kitty card and my conversation with Larry McCloskey, <laughs> because there actually are really good ways to learn about financed or ways to become financially literate 
the kitty card is obviously not one of them. We got a question uh, on our Twitter feed, at Market Foolery. Uh, actually, it was for Jason Moser uh, from Rob, who writes, Hey, Mr. Moser, give a young stock geek some reading recommendations, would you? Jason replied on Twitter, but I thought it'd be a good opportunity for you guys to weigh in as well. It's Financial Literacy Month. Simon, what's one? It could be a book. It could be uh, an author. It could be someone to follow on Twitter. But one thing to read to get more financially literate. Chris, every time I'm asked for a book recommendation, I say the same thing. That's The Innovator's Dilemma by Clayton Christensen. Uh, The word disruption is overused, I would say, in the financial media today. But Clayton Christensen really was kind of the father of what is disruption out there. What should you be looking for? And if you're a big company, what do you need to keep your eyes on? So, that's the one I would recommend. He visited our office, I want to say it was maybe 2009 or 2010. And just a wonderful example of an absolutely brilliant person who is also great at communicating in a way, both in person and through his writing, communicating complex ideas in a very straightforward manner. Taylor, what about you? Uh, it's actually the, la- the latest business book I've read. It was a few months ago, but introduced to me by The Fool is The Outsiders. Covers eight CEOs that just generated tremendous wealth for shareholders over the time that they were at the helm, either creating the company or, or, or taking over and then kind of turning everything around. Um, it's something that really puts you in the mind of some of the best business thinkers in the business. And it was w- well-written. You're not just struggling through it. It was something that I enjoyed reading and learned a lot about. Those are both great books. I'm going to go with a book that's actually cheaper than both of those. Um, and it's a little bit of a shameless plug, but it's the newest book from The Motley Fool. It is The Motley Fool Guide to Investing for Beginners. It's an ebook that you can buy on Amazon. You don't need a Kindle. Any e-reader works. Um, and it just goes for $2.99. It's a 75-page guide, the, the Motley Fool Guide to Investing for Beginners. You can give it as a gift to someone in your life who maybe you want to help them with their finances. But again, just $2.99. That's it. That's deal. it. What a deal. That's. Man. I mean, come on. It's a cup of coffee, for crying out loud. Uh, Taylor Muckerman, Simon Erickson. Guys, thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Ann Henry. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.